I'm looking forward to diving in with you this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 17. You'll notice it's long. It's long. And it's even a little bit edited down. If you'll notice, we're going to jump from verse 11 to verse 20, and I'll fill in some of those details through the message this morning, but simply want to say a couple of words just as we begin, really to prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord, from His Word, and to know what it is that He wants us to listen for as we read His Word this morning. And as I think about what to listen for, I can't help thinking about the Chicago Cubs. <laughs> they're 9-2, and two, and they're on top of the National League Central. I know you've been paying close attention those of you Cardinals fans, this is the year, okay? Any team can have a bad century. It's, um, this is our year. Now, those of you who have followed baseball for some period of time, you, you know, I only mention it in every other sermon or so, the game is riddled with superstition. If you have been around players, you yourself was a player, you know that kinds of players have routines, what they eat on game day, how they dress, what music they listen to as they prepare, while they go through their warm-up routine. Everything has to do with superstition. It gets worse when you start winning, because then you begin to wonder, well, was it this that gave us the luck that we needed to be able to win this game? Was it the way that we did that, that was used in some way to get us towards victory. I remember when I was playing ball in high school and we were on a four or five game winning streak. We began to get really excited about how well we were doing and one of my team members decided the magic was in the socks and said, let's just not wash our socks the rest of the season. And the coach actually overheard us suggest this as a possible means of winning. And he said uh, words that I, I still remember. His name is Mitch Malden, very influential in my uh, early years of playing baseball. He said, if you want to keep the streak going, why don't you decide in your mind ahead of time that you're just going to win? That's what he said. Why don't you decide in your mind ahead of time that you're just going to win. He was doing something that any coach would do with any player, which is get their mind set on winning. Because sports, though physical, is mental. And those of you who played know that most of it is indeed perspective. It's keeping the mind set and keeping the courage and confidence up that we will win when we take the field today. Now, a handful of years later, I was in a humanities course where we were studying, actually, military strategy. We were in a section of the curriculum that was dealing with um, strategies from Thucydides, his history of the Peloponnesian War, and, and strategies that, that show up in other historical novels and retellings of history and generals who've written on the art of war, and we read that very famous book by Sun Tzu, by that title, The Art of War. And I remember running across the quote, which I searched in vain through my book, The Art of War, this week to find, but it was a quote that goes something like, victorious warriors win first and then go to war. 
And those who are defeated warriors go to war in order to win. You can see what Sun Tzu is trying to say in that quote. Those who are victorious warriors win first and then go to war. They've already decided on the front end the outcome. He says, but those who are defeated warriors are going to war to win. They go in with hesitancy, lack of confidence. They, they've already got a level of uncertainty as they go in to battle. Well, we have before us a text that is about winning, about a victorious battle. And the one in whom the Lord has chosen to be the man who will be victorious has, it appears, the confidence of one who's decided that he will win on the front end even before he's ever gone into battle. But his reason is not because he has the right armor or the right weaponry, but it's because he goes in the name of the Lord. Let's look at this text together from 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 to 11, and then verses 20 to 58. This is God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Eli and drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose weight was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear had weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. And if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich him who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? 
For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his elder brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they were repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, as I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth, and if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and the uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all of the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew nearer to meet David, David quickly ran towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. Now, there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. 
And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath to the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sheraim and from Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and he brought it to Jerusalem and he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are amazed at this story. It captures our imaginations right from the very beginning, but not just for the storytelling, but for the power of the narrative, for the way in which you have saved your people. We want to behold you, O Lord, and to see you, our champion, victor as you are over the enemies of the world and the flesh and the devil. Today, we want to behold Jesus from this text. Would you show him to us through the power of your spirit? We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, it's roughly 12 miles outside of Bethlehem. This Valley of Elah, where these two armies, Philistia and Israel, face off against one another on opposite ends. It was the traditional formation of ancient warfare, one wall of deadly military force facing and aligned against another wall of deadly military force, all waiting for the general's word, for their spears to go down and their shields to go up, and for the charging to happen across that one-mile-long valley of Elah that would end, of course, in a thunderous clash and hand-to-hand combat and a bloodbath would ensue. That's what we expect to see. That's how the narrative really opens. This was going to be an Old Testament brave heart. This is a Near Eastern Gettysburg. That's what's about to take place in the pages of Scripture. But all of a sudden, this Philistine, the champion, separates himself out from his army, and he challenges Israel to a duel. He says in verse 8, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me if he is able to fight with me and kill me. Then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. It seems like almost a moment of civility. Let's don't kill everybody in this bloodbath. Let's just, well, let's just cut it down to just two of us. Your champion against ours. It's a moment of truth. And as scary as it is, the agreement is quite clear. Whoever wins, well, you, you get all of the army of Israel to be your servant. And whoever loses winds up having to go the opposite direction, to serve them. The weight of the whole nation, if you will, rests upon one champion. That champion is a representative of his entire country. 
If he wins, the whole country wins. If he loses, the whole country loses. He's like the, he's like the, the kicker who's kicking the field goal to win the game. And you don't know his name. Nobody does unless he misses the kick. That's this moment. That's this moment. This champion who goes forth to, to represent the entire team unto victory or unto defeat. And it makes sense why Philistia comes up with this plan. Because they have Goliath. Goliath of Gath. Which as we read the description of him in verses 4 to 7 in our text, we are quite impressed. If we convert the measurements from that of Hebrews to our own, we learn that this man is about nine and a half feet tall. He's got armor that weighs about 125 pounds. And the spearhead, just the spearhead, not the weaver's beam of the pole, weighs in at 15 to 16 pounds. It's a fantastic description. And if we didn't know better, we'd call it a myth. It's like something that's larger than life. It's Achilles in Homer's Iliad. But as you can see from the literary treatment here in the Bible, this is not a myth. This is not a mere story. This is historical record. We're not talking about Jack and the Beanstalk kind of giant here. We're talking about a real man hailing from a real place, a place called Gath. I believe there's a reason why Gath is mentioned in the text. I think it's a significant historical clue for all of those modern readers of the text that will simply write this off as fantasy. The writer here in 1 Samuel is saying, no, 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 this man is from Gath. Why is Gath important? Well, maybe you'll remember Numbers chapter 13 when the, 40, uh, when the Israelites elect 12 spies to go into the land of Canaan to search out the land to see what it's going to look like. And they come back with a report of this luscious fruit, you know, grapes the size of cantaloupes, and it's land flowing with milk and, and with honey. It's absolutely marvelous. And then they say, those spies, but the people in the land, they are huge. In fact, what we found there were the descendants of the Anakim, what are described in the book of Genesis as the Nephilim. These are a race of giants, huge people, that the spies say we are like grasshoppers next to them. Now, what does this have to do with Goliath? Well, if you search out the Anakim and the Nephilim, you find out that the last place of their land refuge is this little place called, yes, you guessed it, Gath. Goliath is is the same people from the land of Canaan that scared the people of Israel back in Numbers chapter 13 that caused them to say, we're not going to go into the land. We'll never be able to take these people. Well, a lot has changed, but nothing has changed. We're centuries removed from that moment, but the people of Israel are still scared of those people. It just comes under the name Philistia now. It comes under the, the figure of a person named Goliath. And the Goliath goes out before the people, and as they see his visage, they just, we're told in verse 11, well, they're afraid and they're completely dismayed. They don't have a shot. And Goliath doesn't think they have a shot. This is the best way to defeat Israel. Now, what's remarkable, and I think a, a little-known aspect of the text that we often forget, is that Goliath didn't just go out one day and begin yelling towards the people of Israel these insults and defying their ability to conquer Philistia. No, we're told that he came out 
40 days in a row. 40 days in a row. He came out morning and evening for 40 days in a row. That's a total of 80 times Goliath came out with these insults spewing towards the people of Israel. And on one of those occasions, there happens to be this little shepherd boy who's running to the ranks to meet his older brothers. A little section that we skipped from verses 12 to verse 19 tells us that Jesse is actually concerned that Eliab and his other son, who's battling here for Philistia, has enough for lunch. And so there is David running some grains and cheese out there to his, his brothers who apparently are playing cornhole or, or throwing horseshoes or I don't know what they're doing because they're definitely not fighting, but he wants to make sure that they have lunch. That's why David shows up on the scene. And it's there where David overhears this champion defying the army of the living God. I think it's really important that you see that's how David says it. In fact, David, very interestingly, is the only person in the text that gives us any note that God's anywhere in any of this. The very first words that come out of David's mouth are found there in verse 26, and there are two questions. After he is just appalled that the military regime of Israel would sit there and take these insults for 40 days, twice a day, 80 times total, and they're over there twiddling their thumbs scared to death. He's insulted by it, asks the question, who is this, notice, uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, I didn't realize this till this very week, but do you realize this is the very first word in recorded scriptural history that David ever speaks? This is the first word. The whole last chapter, we, we hear all about David and his anointing, but he says nothing. Up to this point, 26 verses into chapter 17, it's about David, but he's never said anything. The first thing that comes out of his mouth gives us a biblical theological note for how it is that David is viewing what is taking place, and he's viewing it very differently than everybody else around him. What has Goliath been called up to this point? A champion, a giant a war hero. But what does David call him? An uncircumcised Philistine. <laughs> now, why did David say that? No one else has said that. He's not picking that up from anybody. He's seeing something different than what everybody else is seeing as he comes towards the front lines of the battle. He's actually showing us the lesson that we learned last week from 1 Samuel chapter 16, that everybody there is looking on the outward appearance. But David is looking at the heart. And when he sees Goliath, he doesn't see a nine and a half foot tall man with 125 pounds of armor with a large spear, probably bigger than David himself. What he sees is a man who is not in covenant relationship with God. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. He doesn't know God. He doesn't have the blessings of God. He doesn't have God at his right hand. David sees from the perspective of the spiritual, not from the physical. David is not, is not blinded by the deception of the eyes because he sees with the eyes of faith. 
He does simultaneously. We see it in the last part of the question. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who will defy who? The armies of the living God. Now, see, up to this point, all the armies of Israel are called are Saul's men or the armies of Israel. But when David sees the army of Israel, he sees Saul's men. You know what he sees? The armies of the living God. These are the people who are in covenant with God. These are the people who God has saved and rescued and drawn to himself. You see, David is not approaching this battle as if it is an earthly conflict. that's waged on earthly terms. That's won by earthly weapons. And this is why David is in no way scared of Goliath. Everyone else is seeing Goliath and they think there's no way that he can be defeated. But David sees to the heart of the matter. He knows that this is a spiritual battle. That it must be waged on spiritual terms. And it must be waged with spiritual weapons. You see, Goliath is the champion of Philistia. But guess who's the champion of Israel? The living God. In David's scheme, Goliath has no idea what he's matched up against. He has no idea what he's matched up against. He doesn't have a shot against Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who sustains the cosmos by the word of his power. The one who in a moment can rise kings and fall kings. The one who has every every single person's breath in the palm of his hand right now. Nine foot tall, 125 pounds of armor, a drop in the bucket. You see, this is the perspective that gives David the courage to live like a man of God. David, this is why he can go to Saul and he can say, listen, don't let your men's hearts fail. All the men's hearts around you are failing. Don't let them fail. I'll go up against the Philistine. (laughs) I wish we had Saul's response recorded in full here. I think we have the cliff note version. He must have certainly have seen this as nothing more than foolish youth bravado. Some kind of naive, teenager-esque, too big for his britches kind of response, as my mom would say. But David doesn't back down. In verse 37, he gives us that steely confidence. He says, listen, the Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me again from the hand of this Philistine. You see, one of the things that David knows about his God is he's allowing God's past faithfulness and deliverance to inform his present dilemma. It's a really important spiritual lesson. When we see with the eyes of faith, we begin to see the things that seem unconquerable in our life, the things that seem so difficult, the things that we seem to be lost causes, all of a sudden take on a very different hue when we begin to realize what it is that the Lord has done in the past. The Lord has delivered me from a lion. He's delivered me from a bear. He'll deliver me from this as well. David has absolute confidence because he knows that God is faithful. We can read this, of course, as David just simply flashing his credentials, saying, listen, you you can trust me. Look at my resume. I've killed a lion. I've killed a bear. It's pretty good. That's not what we see here. He says, see, the Lord's delivered me. He's saying, David's saying, the Lord is with me. 
The Lord is with me. When you send me out there, you're not sending out a five foot six scrawny shepherd boy with a robe and a stick with a sling that I most of the time am skipping rocks across the pond with. That's not who you're sending out there. You're sending out someone who the Lord has united himself with. I am, at this point, the Lord's anointed. I have become the man of God's own choosing. The Lord has delivered me. And for some reason, Saul says, okay, go and may the Lord be with you. Well, little did Saul know the Lord was with him, with him in a way that Saul couldn't even begin to imagine. But before Saul releases David, you, you remember what he does. He says, listen, listen, boy, we got we to do something here. We got to put my armor on you. There is David putting on the helmet and putting on the breastplate and getting the sword strapped to his side in the sheath. He must have looked like some of our four-year-old children who put on dad's coat or put on mom's dress and has her high heels on stumbling across the living room. He must have looked just utterly foolish. He's a 15, 16, 17-year-old teenage boy. We've already been told that Saul is a shoulder and head taller than anyone else in Israel. There's no way that this armor is ever going to fit. David's bumbling around it and he says, I can't go out there in this. I've never tested these things. This is not going to work. I'm just going to have to go out there how I'm dressed. I'm going to have to go out there and look unprotected in the world's eyes. But have, as it were, a force field of God's providence and protection around me. You see, David wasn't clothed in physical armor. David was clothed in a spiritual armor. He had the presence of the Lord with him. And he realized that though he would look like a joke to the world and look like a joke to Goliath himself, that it wouldn't be Philistia that would have the last laugh. Goliath, seeing David come out to him, must have seen it as an insult. I mean, really? So this is what you think of me. You're going to send a little shepherd boy who's never been trained in warfare. That's your champion. So that's what you're going to send out. You're not going to send out Saul. Saul should have been the one who was sent out, you understand. He was the champion of Israel. He, at this point, has been more victorious than anyone else in military history among the people of Israel. He was their Alexander the Great. And he has refused to go out and fight as the champion of Israel. So David gets a little scrawny shepherd boy, probably barely holding his own against the stiff wind that's coming across the valley of Elah. But he is undeterred because he goes with the presence of Almighty God with him. And he gives to us what must be, I think, the greatest military speech in history. I mean, I've got to read it for you again. I've got to do it because it's just too good. It's just too good. Listen to this. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all of this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword, or a spear, for the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into our hand. That's amazing. It's unbelievable. Don't you want to stand up and shout? I do. 
There's something in that that you see with David, such confidence in the Lord. And here's the reason. He's not in himself. The whole speech is filled with the name of God. In fact, the covenant name of God. You see those capital letters, Lord? Whenever you see the capital letter, letters of Lord in your translations, it's actually the covenant name of God in Hebrew. It's the word Yahweh. He's already called Goliath the uncircumcised Philistine, the man who doesn't have a covenant relationship with God. And now he's saying the covenant God of Israel is the one who's going to come and lay you low. And he's so good, he's going to do it with me. <laughs> he's going to do it with seeming weakness. He's going to do it with foolishness. He's going to do it with the naivety of youth. He's going to lay you low, the champion of the Philistines. What we see in this passage is something just really remarkable about David. Two characteristics that I think must be true of every believer who's waging war against the world and the flesh and the devil. And that is we must have first and foremost a passion for the honor and the glory of God. That's what we see here. That's what we see here. A passion for the honor and the glory of God. Do You see what has motivated David up to this point has not been, hey, he's making us look weak. He says, how dare he defy the armies of the living God? This is the honor of our God. This is his glory among the nations. Today you will be laid low and everybody in this assembly will know that the true God is the God of Israel. That's the point. The point here is not David, strong man of courage, victorious over great Goliath. The point here is that if you trust the true God, the true God always wins. And he wins even when it looks like a defeat. We learned last week we don't judge a book by its cover. We don't live by shiny externals, by armor, by insults and taunts, and by sizes of spears and by sizes of armies. We live by the name of the Lord. We live under his power and by his strength. You see, that's the second point that you see here with David. He has a passion for the glory of God, but he's reliant upon the strength of the Lord. He's reliant upon the strength of the Lord. Even when he tries on the armor and he straps the sword to the side, he's like, this will never do. This, this, this just tries to, you know, this is just trying to put, you know, to steal a political line to put lipstick on a pig. This is trying to make something look something that it's not. I'm going to go out there. And I'm going to go out there just as I am in the weakness of who I am. But I'm going to go out there with the God of heaven and earth with me. And Goliath doesn't stand a chance. He's filled with passion for the honor and glory of God. And he's reliant upon the strength of the Lord. You know what character is created? When you are filled with a passion for the glory of God, but reliant upon the strength of the Lord, it's a, it's a, it's a character that's full of confidence, full of strength, ready to take risk for whatever the Lord calls you into, but one that's not filled with pride not filled with bravado, not filled with arrogance, one that's humble, one that acknowledges if I go out there on my own strength, he'll just slaughter me. He will feed me to the birds and the beasts of the field. But I'm not going out there in my own strength. I'm going out there in the strength of the Lord. It's a humble confidence, a confident humility is what's forged at the very center of David. And it gives him the strength both of voice and of wisdom. It reminds me of what he wrote in Psalm 20, which we'll actually use for the benediction today, David will write these words not too long after this particular moment. 
He says this, Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's the reason David doesn't flinch. That's the reason he knows that he has a superior defense despite what everybody thinks. And so he goes to that little brook and he gathers five smooth stones. These aren't little pebbles. These are significant, you know, baseball-sized stones. These are significant stones. He gathers those five stones and he gathers four more than he's going to need. And he goes into the battle and we're told, I just love this line, he runs towards the battle line. <laughs> it's like he runs. I mean, this is not a slow, methodical, slowly building fear. He runs. And as soon as he arrives close enough to Goliath, he puts that one stone in his sling and he rears back and he lets it fly. And it squarely hits Goliath in his forehead. We're told that the stone sinks into his forehead to let us know it had completely cracked his skull. And in a matter of seconds, Goliath falls to the ground with a thunderous crash. And David wastes no time in finishing him off. He immediately goes for Goliath's sword because we're told in the text, and David had no sword in his hand, as, as if to say he did this miraculously. This was the spirit of the Lord. And he unsheathes Goliath's sword in what must feel like a moment of irony in the text. And with Goliath's own sword, he cuts off Goliath's own head. And the defeat of the Philistines was over in a matter of seconds. Witnessing this spectacle taking place, the Philistines begin to flee the battlefield with shouts. And Israel rises with joy, knowing that they have been victorious, their champion has defeated the champion of Goliath and they chased them all the way back, notice in the text, to Gath. <laughs> chased them all the way back to their homeland, the place of which they have come. And of course, everyone lives happily ever after. <laughs> Not hardly. Uh, we're going to be coursing through the life of David and, and, and you know this is a... This is a crescendo moment that gives way to a lot of difficulties. He's just, he's just beginning to fight. His faith is really just beginning to be tested. And the people of Israel are just now beginning to show how weak and foolish and naive that they really are. The Lord does save his anointed. And he does come in promotion to Israel's need as they call upon him through David, the man of God's own choosing. But this is not a victory that leads to happily ever after. It leads to more trouble. Philistia is going to keep showing up as a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. Until the champion comes. Until the real champion. The champion who was behind the champion in this text. The, the Lord. The maker of heaven and earth. The one who John says is the word incarnate who spoke the world into being. That one who will now become the word made flesh, the redeemer of all of mankind until that champion comes. Who will come as a representative for all his people. 
just like the champion in this text. If the champion wins, the whole nation wins. And our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes to the earth in order to represent his people. And in his victory, as he wins that victory, we all win in and through him. As he, as it were, slays the head off of sin and death, breaking the powers of bondage and corruption and the verdict of guilty that would lead to our eternal death, Jesus, the true champion, is the one who frees us and allows us to shout with a victory cry. And he does it in the most foolish and weak and weird ways. When the, actually, when the world was looking at the cross, they saw it as a defeat. It looked like the champion had lost. And yet it was merely like David gathering five stones with a sling who didn't have a shot against nine-foot-tall Goliath with 125 pounds of armor. And it looked like Jesus had been slayed by the Goliath of sin and death. And then he let the rock fly. And it sunk deep into the forehead of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And though it still fights like it's living, it's in its death throes even today. Because Jesus, the first fruits of the resurrection, on the third day following that crucifixion, burst forth from the grave. And we realize that all of the world, flesh, and the devil now flee back to where it is that they've come from. <laughs> Because he has been our victor. He has been our champion. He is our representative. The one who was weak and helpless and thought he didn't have a shot to be the king of heaven and earth has indeed become the king of heaven and earth. And let me tell you, this is why Sun Tzu's onto something serious and seriously important in the art of war. And he doesn't mean it in the Taoist way that he says it in the art of war. But to see this, you who are in Christ... You today do not live for victory. You live from victory. When you get up in the morning and you go to work and you're going to receive those attacks, you don't go as one who has to fight for victory. You go as one who's already had your victory won for you. You've decided to win first and then you go into war because you have won. The battle is the Lord's and the battle is over. The final pages of the scripture have already been written. Jesus wins. The city of Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Jesus wins. The champion has already laid siege to the things that want to destroy you. Jesus wins. And if you trust in Jesus, you've already won. And when we lay you in the grave one day and me in the grave one day, and it'll look like death has won, there will come another day where you will realize that your champion has really won when he returns. And you come back from the grave. And the Goliath of sin and death that, that we thought had had the last word on you will be silenced in the midst of the ruler of heaven and earth redeeming all things by the word of his power. Listen, friends, we don't, we're not in this fight to lose. We're not in this fight to win. We're in this fight as winners. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done, our champion. Let's pray together.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the champion Jesus. We rest in him and we trust in him alone. Let our minds and our hearts receive in confidence the power of this truth. And let us not shake in our boots in fear like the people of Israel who ran away in cowardice. Indeed, let us go boldly towards the line running with the weakness that we are, knowing that the Lord is with us. And whether we die or whether we win, we win in Jesus. We pray this in his powerful risen, ascended, and one day returning name. Amen and amen.